Basically, we need to be aware of the fact that we have men's prayer breakfast on Saturday, September 22nd at uh, 7.30 in the morning. And, well, that was good. Somebody needs to find needle and thread so that button on. Okay, that's where it goes. Uh, also, on October the 20th, we're going to have our picnic, and that will be out at... Um, uh, Orlando's place as we usually have it out there if it doesn't rain. So with our record the last few years we've had too many ra- rain out so we just kind of move it around and we're flexible. Okay, so those are the two big announcements. How shall a young... Yes, Betty. What? I think it should be. That's a very good catch there. And it's been that way for I don't know how long. Unless something got messed up tonight. Because I was messing with the numbers and it wasn't typing them where I was trying to type them. So that's that's what happened. That was just on tonight's slide. Thanks, Betty. I was trying to change. The two got in there because I was putting it at the end of the... Uh, I didn't finish everything with Abraham and Jacob last week, so I kept trying to put a two at the end, and it was putting it at the beginning of the next line. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure that we're properly prepared, spiritually prepared to uh, worship the Lord as we study his word. Studying God's word is always an act of worship, uh, even if it doesn't entail the other elements that we have on a Sunday morning. But the study of God's Word and the application of God's Word is really the highest form of worship. So as we prepare to study tonight, let's bow our heads together. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Fathers, we are conducting this study on worship. We are just impressed with your majesty, your greatness, just the in awe of all that you are and all that you have done in grace and mercy to us. And Father, we come now to take time to focus upon your word, to put aside the details of life, the concerns the everyday issues that crowd into our uh, consciousness, the worries, the concerns, and to focus on that which has eternal value, eternal significance, that which shapes our character, who we are, that which focuses us on our purpose in this life, which is to serve you. Father, now we pray that you would open our eyes to understand what we're studying today 
and that uh, will it will be very clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen. Okay. Well, we're going to do something a little different at the beginning of class. We've been studying about worship, but every now and then there is something of contemporary significance, something that has happened in our culture, something that's happened in our news, that you just want to take the time to talk about this and how we respond from a biblical or Christian uh, perspective. And it's an opportunity because uh, it's an application of a verse I talked about on Sunday morning, Deuteronomy 6, that we are to talk about God's Word uh, as we rise up, as we sit down, as we come, and as we go. And this is primarily directed to parents in terms of teaching children. When you have opportunities all throughout the day to reinforce a divine viewpoint in your kids and help them understand how to look at life from a scriptural viewpoint. And that's the same thing here. We get something that comes up, and in this case, it involved somebody in the congregation uh, texting me something and asking me a question. And so we went through a little process of uh, how to deal with this. And I thought, well, this is not just good for this individual. It's good for the congregation. As many of you are probably aware today, if you've looked at anything in relation to the news, an extremely controversial ad came out uh, over the weekend with Colin Kaepernick. And here I've got this up on the screen for us. And this is a Nike ad. And there's a lot of different ways that you may want to respond to this Nike ad. But let me suggest that this is a great tool to use for witnessing, asking the right questions. And in this particular situation that I'm talking about, someone who was in pastoral ministry posted this on a Facebook page talking about how admirable this is. And so I was asked about, you know, how would you respond to this? Now, here's the trap, is that when many conservatives look at this, their reaction is very negative towards Kaepernick because of of what he has done, because of his stand in kneeling uh, for the... Um, when uh, Let me shift my papers around here. Uh, stand for kneeling at the national anthem. And most people have lost sight of why he was kneeling, and it wasn't really clear how the kneeling for the national anthem related to uh, his social concerns. But I want to point this out because this is something that is at the heart of, sh of shifts that are taking place in our culture. And what this ad says, because you may not be able to read it at the very back, is across the center of the picture of Kaepernick, it says, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. Now think about that a minute. Now, here is someone in this particular situation who posted this, and this individual that posted is a minister of the gospel. Think about that. That person who posts this is representing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's their calling, that's their job, that's their vocation, that's their avocation. But you may run into something like this from somebody you know, somebody in your family, and somebody may make some comment and say, 
well, well, isn't that great? Isn't that admirable? We need to uh, respect him because he stands up for that which he believes. Now, this is a great opportunity not to get in somebody's face, but in the right situation, the right circumstances, to ask some questions. And that's what I was asked about, and I said, okay, you know, we have to be very careful in this situation that the issue here is clearly defined. What's the issue here? Has nothing to do with Kepernick or his personality. Doesn't have anything to do with his kneeling or not. And that's immediately what people want to go to. But this ad makes a statement about belief. That's what this is about. See, we can't get distracted by, as um, there's also an article that came out um, about comparing Kaepernick in the Washington Post, comparing Kaepernick with uh, uh, Tim Tebow. Now, that article made some interesting observations, and I want to address a couple of those things because as Christians, we're living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, as Paul Paul says, just as they did in the Roman Empire. And we're supposed to give an answer for the hope that is in us. So we have to think about how we're going to do that in a way that makes it a spiritually profitable uh, conversation. Now, that doesn't mean that the person is going to respond positively to us because Jesus took advantage of lots of spiritually profitable situations, and all he did was really anger the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So sometimes when we ask questions out of pure, as pure motives as we can come up with, the reaction from somebody is going to be maybe pretty hostile because we're exposing something that is that is wrong or that is sinful, and at some level they may they may know that. The statement that is made here, believe in something, is that a proposition that can stand up to the scriptural view of faith or the scriptural view of belief? Now let's back up just a minute. What are the ways in which the world system and Satan have attacked the concept of faith. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe. It's your sincerity. That doesn't work at all when you're in court. It, it doesn't matter if you believe you were, in, you were not in a school zone. If you're in a school zone, you're going to pay a $500 fine, and if you're really going fast, you're probably going to go to jail doesn't matter how sincere your belief is. Sincerity in a belief system doesn't matter. The Pharisees and Sadducees were pretty sincere, but Jesus said that they were of their father, the devil. So the belief system in the Bible is one that is not focused on belief as if belief is in and of itself is significant. And that's how you hear a lot of, and that comes out of liberal Christianity. That's how you hear a, a lot of discussion about faith. They're a person of faith. I don't care. I want to know what their faith is in because that's the Bible. When you come to the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of John, you have the word faith used over 95 times. 
but it's always in relation to belief in him, belief in Jesus. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life. It's not belief itself that's important. It is belief in him. So when you have somebody who is a Christian, especially somebody who is in a a Christian ministry, and they look at something like this and they say, isn't this wonderful? Then what you should do is ask questions like, and this is what was done in this conversation, like, well, in what way does this impress you? What you're trying to do is get to the point where you're exposing and getting the person to state what their concept of faith is, what their concept of belief is, and what they're believing. And, and of course, in the course of this conversation, the response was always related to shifting the focus to Kaepernick's stand. At, you know, no matter how the question was posed, well, how does this, you, how do you as a minister of the gospel advocate this kind of faith over against the kind of faith that's evidenced in the Bible? And, well, th- and the response was, well, what's your problem with Kaepernick? What are you trying to get at? See, the topic here isn't on, the, on Kaepernick. And that happens a lot when you're in a witnessing situation. People want to change the subject. And so what you have to do is gently ask questions that keep them on the subject and not get diverted by non-essentials. And the issue here isn't really Tim Tebow. The issue really isn't Kaepernick and their beliefs um, and what they're doing. The issue is how do you understand faith, do you understand belief in a biblical way or in a non-biblical way? Now, what came up in this conversation is something that is not unusual and something that would be expected, and that is, well, he believes in this and we should support him. I mean, this was the sense of the response was we should support him because, you know, he's willing to give his life for this, and that's what Jesus did. Is that what Jesus did? So you have to understand a little bit theologically in the history of theology is that there are different ways in which the atonement has been understood in history. The early view of the atonement was that it was substitutionary, and we've taught this, and you can Google, not Google, but you can go to the index or to the uh, search feature on the Dean Bible Ministries website, and you can find the lessons where I've taught on substitutionary atonement and all the various verses that emphasize that. One of the most clear, we've talked about it several times in 1 Peter, but one of the most clear is found in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is focused on the denial of the resurrection on the part of the on the part of the Corinthians, but as he introduces the topic, he says, I declare, in verse 1, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, 
if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So what he's talking about at the very beginning is the, the gospel, what he did, the content of the gospel. He says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And if you go back to Isaiah chapter 53, you can find a number of statements in Isaiah 53 that talk about the fact that this suffering servant would come and that he would die for uh, the sins of his people. He would uh, be uh, punished for their sins. By his stripes we are healed. Uh, Those phrases are all phrases of substitution. You can go back to the Old Testament imagery of 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 a sacrifice, as we're looking at tonight, that when you put your hands on the animal, your sins are transferred to the animal symbolically, and the animal is then sacrificed because of your sins. It's all substitutionary. And so that was the view of the early church. Then in the late medieval period, uh, around the uh, around a thousand, about a thousand years ago, a view came out by a man named Anselm, and I'm not Anselm, but Abelard, and Abelard had the idea that it was moral influence. In other words, Jesus isn't dying for our sins. He is showing us how we should how we should live. This gets modified in several ways. Later on, there's a uh, very famous uh, lawyer in Holland in the 1600s named Hugo Grotius who calls it a governmental theory, and that God is demonstrating his his government that he must uh, he must punish sin, and it has nothing to do with justification or the payment of a sin penalty. Uh, that's the issue here, and so the idea that that we give ourselves to something we believe in, that that's what Jesus did, is it just comes out of, of core liberal theology. It's a rejection of the truth of God's Word. And so as I was uh, helping this person work through that, that's what I was trying to give her questions to use to ask this person, because I wanted to expose the fact that she's a rank liberal and in a denomination that is uh, putatively conservative, and that she's denying substitutionary atonement. After a while, she quit answering. So that seems to indicate that this individual who had posted this didn't want to expose the fact that um, that a heretical view of the gospel was was being presented was at the, the at the core and so that's what we have to do when we talk to people is to ask questions and what we're trying to do is get to an understanding of what they really believe and then we can talk about that in terms of what the bible says so the bible is always the authority and when we ask questions, we're not, it's not done in an argumentative way or a way to try to put somebody down, but they'll take it that way. And that's what happened with the Pharisees. Jesus would ask them questions, and they would just go ballistic because it exposes their unbelief. And, and that's what this is. This is espousing a philosophy. It's the philosophy in the ad that is the issue for us as believers, not Kaepernick or any of these other things, and it, yet it exposes something else. In this article by Michael Frost, which 
uh, came out uh, actually about a year ago, he makes some interesting comments as he's contrasting uh, Tim Tebow with Colin Kaepernick. And he says to him, and he says very astutely, it seems to me that Tim Tebow and Colin Kaepernick represent the two very different forms that American Christianity has come to. Now, that's insightful because we live in a culture conflict where there is one branch of Christianity, what I would call conservative fundamental Christianity, that is biblical, that is consistent with the inerrant, infallible nature of the Bible. And then we have a new view that's come along that is heavily influencing evangelicalism that has bought into many of the world's assumptions, does not believe in an inerrant, infallible uh, scripture, and they are being heavily influenced today by social justice. Now, two things we ought to note about social justice. One, it's a term that is amorphous. That means it has no definition, no form. All kinds of people are using the social justice tag to relate to whatever it is that they're doing. It's like even the word evangelical, it can mean just about anything to anybody. And so you have to be careful with terms, terms like that. But it comes out of and is consistent with a basic worldview of socialism or communism, which isn't consistent with biblical principles of private ownership of property. The best way to demonstrate that the Bible holds to private ownership of property is in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, affirms the right of property ownership and and land ownership. And this runs all the way through the the Mosaic Law. But let me just point out a couple of things that this guy points out. He says that this division... These two different forms of Christianity. It's not just in the United States. He says in many parts of the world, it feels as though the church is separating into two versions. One that values personal piety. Now, what he means by that is your personal relationship with God. Okay, don't get caught up in the use of the word piety. What he's talking about is a personal walk with the Lord. Values personal piety, gentleness, part of the fruit of the Spirit, respect for cultural mores, and an emphasis on moral issues like abortion and homosexuality. So that's one side. He says, and another that values social justice, community development, racial reconciliation, and political activism. Now, those terms are really nuanced in terms of what we would call the radical left. Or, or liberalism. Now, you have to, therefore, if you're going to interact with people in a way that's edifying and trying to move people towards biblical truth, I think we have to come to understand what these terms mean and how they're being used. And there's very little that's written from a social justice viewpoint. Uh, you might want to, if you want to investigate a biblical view of, of this social justice movement, go to Scott Annual, that's spelled A-N-I-O-L. He has a blog, um, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it has to do with with, uh, righteousness and culture and some things like that, and you can sign up for his newsletter. And he's been writing some things recently 
where he's doing a good job. There's a couple of others. I understand John MacArthur is starting uh, a to blog on his website on dealing with social justice. I talked to Scott about um, probably five or six weeks ago. He sent me a paper he's written on dispensationalism and social involvement, which is very, very good. And he points out that how the kingdom now philosophy, if we're in some form of the kingdom, is being taken over by if we're living in some form of the kingdom, then it's the role of the church to bring in kingdom righteousness. Now, how many people, how many evangelicals believe in a dispensational viewpoint? It's a minority. Everybody else believes we're in some form of the kingdom. That means they are being attracted to social justice. And when I talked to Scott, I was asking him some questions because of some other things that came up while I was in Israel about what happened at the Southern Baptist Convention this year. And at the Southern Baptist Convention this year, he said it was all, here's the most conservative denomination that has been, was, was won back by the conservatives about 35 years ago and has taken a stand for inerrancy and infallibility. Now the liberals are coming back. And he said that the sub-theme of everything at the Southern Baptist Convention this year was social justice. Okay, the, I forget it is the head of the uh, ethics and morality uh, committee for Southern uh, Russell Moore uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. He's all about social justice. He's been a lifelong liberal, lifelong Democrat, and he has really been pushing this. And his predecessor was a an extreme Richard Land, Doctor Richard Land, who had his PhD from either Oxford or Cambridge. I can't remember which. Um, was extremely articulate, brilliant, and very conservative, and was had been highly influenced by uh, the positive, imp, the positive teaching of, of uh, Francis Schaeffer. And he was at the forefront of many good things. But when he retired, he's replaced by guys at the opposite end of the of, of the spectrum, who is liberal. And and holds and holds this, all this social justice. This is really coming in in a big, in a big way. So that's the conflict. We have to understand what social justice is, what they mean by this, what these social justice warriors are all about, because they're they're distorting the gospel. They're bringing this in to major denominations, and evangelical conservatives are being sucked into this because they've already bought into an already not yet view of the kingdom. And I haven't had the time, and I don't want to take the time, to go through and do a chorus-by-chorus analysis of contemporary Christian songs. But my personal experience and viewpoint is that about 60 or 70% of them all talk about the kingdom and Jesus as king in a wrong way. And most of these songs, you can go back to uh, the the very popular chorus in the 80s called Majesty. And it's all about kingdom authority. Majesty, kingdom authority is a second phrase in the chorus. We have no kingdom authority. We are not in the kingdom. There is no way, shape, or form that there is any messianic kingdom today. That's what kingdom means. And yet that's that's what's driving this kind of thinking. 
is that we need to, as the church, we need to culturally change society uh, because of these things. And that's what this guy's pointing out. He says, he's pointing out these contrasts. He said, one version is kneeling in private prayer. That's what Tim Tebow was doing. The other is kneeling in public protest. That's what Kaepernick was doing. See, they come, they they both may have kneeled, but they're doing it for radically different reasons. He said one is concerned with private sins like abortion. The other is concerned with public sins like racial discrimination. That's always been part of liberalism. Liberalism has always been concerned with public sins. Now, they are sins. They are problems such as um, slavery, uh, women's rights, child uh, labor, a lot of these issues back and and, uh, 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 temperance the abuse of alcohol back in the 19th century. But you have to understand the framework because the framework is all important. The framework for that that in the early 19th century was an assumption that man was basically perfectible. See, at the core of the social justice movement is the idea that we can bring in some sort of utopia. It's borrowed from communism and socialism that we can have a perfect society. But what the scripture teaches is there can be no social perfection until Jesus is on the throne of David ruling in Jerusalem. That it's not the motivation of Christians to reform society today. We cannot do that. But what we can do, we can be involved politically for a totally different reason, and that is because we love our neighbors and we want to restrain evil. That's our motivation. We're not trying to bring in the kingdom or solve all of social problems. But the core of this on on their side was this idea in the 19th century that man is basically good. Therefore, man is perfectible because he starts off good, not evil. Man is perfectible, and therefore, if man is perfectible, society is perfectible. And that was very much a part of the teaching of probably the greatest known evangelist of the Second Great Awakening, Charles Grandison Finney. And he was a great um, promoter of social change. In fact, he was a major abolitionist, founded Oberlin College and Seminary, which was the seat, the heart of the abolitionist movement. Now, there were many other people who held to abolitionism, who did not hold to his philosophy and framework. That's what makes the difference. You have William Wilberforce and John Newton, who understood that all human beings are created in the image and likeness of God and should not be enslaved by others, and therefore we should end slavery. It wasn't designed on the arrogant assumption that we can create a perfect society. That's what makes the difference. See, folks, it's not just the surface issue. You have to understand the underlying philosophical framework that two people can do the same thing like Kaepernick and, and uh, 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 Tebow, but it's the content of what they're doing. Seems like we talked about that in reference to worship at the end of the last class when we're talking about Abraham. Abraham would go on one side of the road in Shechem and he would construct a stone altar and he would build a fire and he would sacrifice an animal. And you might have a Canaanite on the other side who constructs an altar and uh, burns an animal. 
And the only way you know the difference is not through the symbolism and the ritual, but because you go listen to what they say. And Abraham is announcing his God, the one-of-a-kind creator God of the universe, and he's describing his attributes. But that's not what's being said by the by the Canaanite on the other side. He's talking about all of these different gods and goddesses, and it's a totally different framework. So it's not what you see on the surface that's the difference. It's what it represents. You have to have those words of content. Well, this article goes on to say, uh, in the contrast, one preaches a gospel of personal salvation, the other preaches a gospel of political and social transformation. Now, where does that idea of political and social transformation come from? Its root is the idea that man is perfectible and society is perfectible apart from Jesus Christ and the solution of sin. So that that it it doesn't matter. You don't talk about substitutionary sacrifice because that brings in a robust concept of sin and assumes that man is totally depraved. So you have these these differences, and they're important critical differences, and that's why in the questions I was proposing that this person would be asked, I was asking questions to try to expose their concept of belief and what you believe in, and that, that their concept of this belief was contrary to what the scriptures said, that they did not believe in a substitutionary atonement of Jesus as the gospel. And that came across in some some of the answers. Then, this is really interesting. This article then says, one is reading the epistles of Paul, the other is reading the minor prophets. Now, why is that important? It's not just the minor prophets, it's also the major prophets. You look at Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they are uh, confronting Israel with their unbelief and their idolatry, and as a result of which, the poor are suffering. Now, what happens in communism and socialism is that these passages that are dealing with their abuse of the poor are misinterpreted. The challenge is is that under the law of Moses, there were collections that were taken that went to the temple, and that money was to be used as a small safety net for the poor, the widows, and the orphans. And it was, number one, in Malachi, uh, people were, were not giving the tithe. So there's no money. And it is a, an indictment of their disobedience to the law, their, which was their constitution. And that God totally provided for uh, these kinds of situations, but because of their rejection of God and rejection of his law and their personal responsibilities, that they were involved in this kind of, of uh, a selfishness and hoarding and they were not loving their neighbor as their self. And so the consequence was was part of the judgment. But the judgment wasn't just about that. The judgment was that they were rejecting the Mosaic Law and they were rejecting God. That's why you had uh, the destruction of both the northern kingdom and, and the southern kingdom. 
And so the minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the minor prophets, uh, Ezekiel, all of these are used to go to to go to a, an indictment uh, for for culture. We're not under the Mosaic Law. We're not in that kind of scenario, and it's also a total misunderstanding of why they are being indicted for injustice and why they are being indicted for a lack of righteousness. This author goes on to say one is listening to Eric uh, Metaxas, and if you don't know who he is, he's written uh, uh, several good books dealing with Christianity and the history of Christianity and also with uh, the, on the Constitution. And one side's listening to him and Franklin Graham. The other is listening to William Barber and John Perkins. I don't know the first name, the second name. These, these are guys who are social liberals, and they, they have a social gospel. The idea of social justice goes with the social gospel. The social gospel, it was based, it came out of the theology of a man named William um, Rauschenbusch, in the late 19th century. And for him, the kingdom is now in some form, and it's the role of the Christian and the church is to bring in a perfect society. But see, that assumes a nature of man that is basically perfectible. And so, you know, he has he has done a good job of t- stating what he calls the bifurcation of contemporary Christianity into two distinct branches. And what I would say is the fundamental difference is one side takes the Bible literally, believes in the authority of Scripture, believes in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, and the other side believes that the Bible is basically a human book and contains errors and is not the absolute source of truth, and they don't believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture. And that is the split that is occurring in contemporary Christianity. And the issue that, as uh, several people have pointed out just within the last year, is with the uh, various things that have happened in our, in our culture, that this issue of social justice has now, like a locomotive, just burst to the forefront of our society's thinking. And we are, it, it's coming at us from the news media, it's coming at us in various films, and it is nothing more than a Trojan horse for socialism and communism built on the idea that goes back to the Tower of Babel, that man can establish his own perfect kingdom and make a name for himself. And so that is why we need to learn how to give an answer for the hope that is in us because you're going to have kids and grandkids who pick who are learning these ideas or being being force-fed these ideas in their school classes and in their um, and in university classes and they're getting it in all kinds of different things it's 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 dominating social media and it's brainwashing people because this is what is acceptable and it changes the whole focus of our nation. And we're the only ones who have an answer. We need to learn how to give an answer uh, for the hope hope that is in us. So 
I took a little longer than that than I had anticipated, but I think it's it's very important that we understand that. Now, the next thing I want to talk about before we get into our our basic study tonight is an email that came in this this week, and this came in just um, uh, just, just yesterday. And some of you have been here a little while, and you remember Sconey Palmer. I remember Sconey from when I was a kid when he moved to Houston. And Sconey was one of the founding members of West Houston Bible Church, and he was here from uh, its inception in 2004 until the Lord took him home in 2008. And this is, a, is an email that uh, came in from his sister. We had his memorial service here. Uh, at the church, and she talks about that a little bit, but it tells us why what we do here is really important. Our numbers may not seem large to a lot of people, but the impact through the internet is just phenomenal, and I hear things like this every now and then, and I'm just floored. I'm humbled by it because God is using us in some incredible ways, and so I just want to read this to you because we don't always realize what the impact is that we have. She says, It's occurred to me that I should share this story with you. She had sent this to Sandy. And perhaps you might think it's worth sharing with Robbie Dean. It's a little long. I'll try to be concise. I have to start by telling you that my cousin, David McReynolds, you can Google him too. I Googled him last night, uh, died three weeks ago. David was the oldest of us ten cousins and was pretty much our elder statesman. David and I were on opposite sides of every fence you can think of. He was a socialist. He ran for president twice on the socialist ticket. He was a pacifist, a homosexual, an alcoholic, though recovered, or I guess they say recovering because you can never be quite certain. I really didn't realize until he died, and I Googled him, quite uh, what, what a big deal he was in some circles. In spite of all of our differences, we loved and respected each other. We emailed and exchanged ideas. And then she talks a little bit more about him. She then says, when Sconey died in 2008, it was two weeks before our cousin reunion in California. Sconey was the first of the cousins to die, and it left a big hole in our family. He was only 71. She says, at that reunion, I asked all of my cousins to indulge me in one thing. They knew where my brother and I stood on our Christian belief, but agreed to hear me out. I simply asked, would you please tell me if at any time in your life you believed in Jesus as your Savior? I knew we had all been raised in church, although some as adults had declared themselves atheists, including David. But as we went around the circle, each one said that, yes, as a child, they had believed. That's all I needed to know. That's the first lesson. Child evangelism is important. It's been disappointing that last year and this year we were not able to continue our involvement in Child Evangelism Fellowship. But this shows how important it is. Parents, you need to be telling your children the story of salvation from the time they're infants. They may not understand everything, but I believe that their brains are responding to that and building the networks that will enable them to understand it more quickly as they get older. Give them, tell them the story over and over again. I know of kids as young as as two and a half or three that have believed in Jesus, clearly understood the gospel. 
grandparents give those kids the gospel over and over and over again. She then says, but here's the important part. After Sconey died, I sent the information about the funeral at West Houston to all my cousins, although I knew they would not be able to attend. A couple of days later, I got an email from David saying, I went on the church's website and noticed that they believe once saved, always saved. So maybe there's hope for me. See, we just don't know what the impact is. Here is somebody, and there are, I can't tell you how many times I hear this story about people, that they were believers when they were children. But then as they grow up, they reject God, they go carnal, they become atheists, they get overwhelmed with all of the assaults and attacks on Christianity, and they reject it. And so we think of them as that they're not really saved because all we know is their uh, heretical views, their atheism, whatever it may be. And yet, if we believe in eternal security, that a person believes in Christ as Savior, that they are adopted into God's royal family immediately, and they're given a new life in Jesus that can't be taken away from them, that no matter how much they reject God and reject Jesus later in life, they are secure. Jesus said, you hold them in my hand and they will never get loose. They will always be secure. So she goes on to say a few other things, but that is our blessed assurance. That is our certain hope of our salvation. And that is why we do what we do as a church. A church exists for two reasons. Reason number one is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reason number two is to help people understand all of the implications of that gospel after they are saved and the significance for the Christian life and how to tell others about Christ. And that is what we do. And we have a website that announces this. And who would think that some atheist, socialist, homosexual would go look at our doctrinal statement and see that we believe that once saved, always saved. And even though they still hold to atheism, there's always, if they're saved, the Holy Spirit is in there knocking on the basement door that they that he's been consigned to in their soul. And, and you hear it right there. Maybe there's hope for me. You know, how can you say that if you're really consistently an atheist? You can't, because deep in your soul, and that's why I always contend there's no such thing as a real atheist. Because Romans 1 says they all know, we all know God exists. All right. Well, that's taken up most of class tonight, so let's go back and just review some things on worship, and then we'll try to move forward just a little bit. What we've seen in terms of our review, same thing I covered last time, is that failure to know the Word leads to a breakdown in worship. When we don't know the Word, we don't know about sin. We don't know who God is. We don't know what God has provided for us, and we can't worship the God of the Bible if we don't know who the God of the Bible is. I've said for 40 years in ministry that the problem that most Christians have is they're so ignorant of Scripture that they have constructed in their head a false view of God and Jesus. It's an idol. It's a mental idol. And they worship that mental idol. 
And that means that they're idolaters. They are not worshiping the God of the Bible. And when we have a church culture that doesn't understand who God is and what and who Jesus is, then that becomes reflected in the songs that they produce, uh, the choruses they produce, in the Bible studies, the art, all of these things that they produce, and they produce a false view of Jesus. And that's what leads to people being deceived and sucked into uh, social justice movements. There's a breakdown in worship. We can only worship the true God of the Bible. Anything else is idolatry. So, one of the things we learn from scriptures is sin must be dealt with before worship can take place. That's what we see at the fall. Sin had to be dealt with before Adam and Eve could be restored to a place where they could worship God because a barrier had been erected between them. Third, we see that worship is on God's terms and not man's terms. God tells us how to worship. God tells us what the problems are and how we can uh, worship him. Fourth, Worship is based on sacrifice because of sin. That's introduced at the end of chapter 3, that there is a sacrifice. There's the death of the animals, that death must take place to pay the penalty for sin. And so all the Old Testament sacrifices were merely training aids to teach about the future sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then last, worship leads to a proclamation of God's character. That's where we are right now in Genesis chapter 12. So if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 12, we'll try to make a little forward progress tonight and get to Genesis chapter 14. But in Genesis chapter 12, this is where we were last week, and and we stopped there. We talked about sacrifice, that sacrifice, I'd add today, is substitutionary. As I talked about in the introduction, Jesus died for our sins. And what we have in the Greek is a very specific nuance in the Greek construction. The preposition who pair plus the genitive, plus we also have another preposition, peri, that's used. And what this talks about is substitution, that this is done in place of that, that the lamb is sacrificed in place of the death of the sinner. And so that is crucial to understand who Jesus is. So I've changed these up a little bit, added a little bit from last week. Fundamentally, worship is not to be seen by men. Later it will be, but initially, up until you get to uh, Abraham, to some degree Noah, but Noah is seen by everybody, which is seven other people. So we're not talking about a huge group. But the first time you see anybody publicly proclaiming at a sacrifice is Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Before that, sacrifice is personal. It's between the individual and God or maybe within a family group and God. It's not. Uh, it's a sign of submission to exalt God, a sign of obedience to God, and done so that the sinner can come before God. It is recognized that that sacrifice is necessary to deal with sin. Second thing we pointed out was that sacrifice is a gift to God. It is something we're bringing to God. And I pointed out that if you're bringing a firstborn lamb, you have to really pay attention to when the first lamb is born. 
And then you have to take care of the lamb. You have to raise it. You have to make sure it's going to be without spot or blemish. If it's going to be a Passover lamb, you have to uh, nurture it. You have to set it off from the rest of the flock because you don't want to lose it. Uh Uh-oh, one lamb looks like another. I'll lose sight of my firstborn. So it it, it costs something. Uh, A sacrifice does. Third, as as such, we see that sacrifice is the basis of fellowship with God. Uh, Gen, uh, Genesis uh, eight twenty to twenty one, the burnt offerings when Noah and his family got off of the ark. It is how we get to God. Fourth, with Abraham, we see the sacrifice becoming a basis for proclamation of the character of God. This is new from last week, based on what we covered last week. With Abraham, we see sacrifice becoming a basis for proclamation of the character of God and how to have a relationship with him. Calling on the name of the Lord has evangelistic uh, tones to it. So what we see is that sacrifice is not something we do to impress God, but it's made so that we can come into God's presence. Sacrifice is not made because God needs us, uh, but it is made so that uh, because we desperately need God. So last time I talked about Genesis twelve eight. These two verses are the parameter of Abram's life from his uh, beginning of what we know in Genesis chapter 12. And he calls on the name of the Lord. And then we get towards the end of his life or the end of the story And he's learned a lot about God in those 50 years, and he calls on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So he's learning about the character of God and proclaiming something about the character of God. And before we go any further, and I'm just going to wait and cover this next time because we're already about out of time, but I want to point out something else that I have learned as I've been thinking and dwelling on what's going on here. Last time I pointed something out in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. This is a statement, then the Lord, or do I have it right? Um, oh, verse 5, that's right, verse 5. Abraham took his wife and Lot and his, bro- his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan, so they came into the land of Canaan. Now, here's what's going on to bring it back into your mind, is Abraham was not a Sumerian. Sumer is located down near the Persian Gulf where the Tigris and Euphrates come together and then dump into the Persian Gulf. That's where Ur of the Chaldees was. That's where Abraham is, live, Abraham is living when he is called to God. And, but he's not, um, he's not a Sumerian. He is an Aramean. The Arameans lived up in Haran, which is northern Syria, near the border with Turkey today. And so God appears to Abram and tells him to get out of his country, to leave his father's house and go to a land that I will show you. So he left, but he took his father with him and he took his nephew with him, and he's going back to Haran. So he's going across the, the Fertile Crescent. He's going up north and west. And he goes to Haran, and that's not where God's taking him. And as far as we know, God doesn't say anything to him again. Uh, I think for a couple of reasons. He's not fully obedient to the Lord. He's taken his father with him. And so he has to wait until uh, his father dies. 
And so his father uh, father dies while he's there in Haran, and he departs from Haran, and he heads down uh, south, which takes him along the what is called the Levant, which is the area on the uh, eastern shore of the Mediterranean. And he comes down into the land of Canaan. That is where God will speak to him again. But what I want to point out here is this statement that they had uh, acquired these people in Haran. And literally, the word for people, I pointed this out last time, the word for people is nefesh, which means their souls, their lives, just like we often talk today about if there's a wreck of some kind or like when the Titanic went down, so many souls were lost. And so it says that he had so many souls that they had that had made, literally. It's not had acquired. That's a different Hebrew word, like uh, uh, the Hebrew word from which the name Cain comes from, Kana, Q-A-N-A-H. Uh, that would indicate slaves or servants, and that's how this is normally interpreted. But that phrase, it, what it is saying is the souls that they had made in Haran. They, that's not the term for either purchasing slaves or having babies. Now, we know they didn't have any babies because he and Sarah are childless. So in what sense did they make souls? They made souls by proclaiming the name of the Lord. Now, this is really important. Because what I'm setting here is while he's in Haran, before God appears to him in Canaan, before you have the events of Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is already proclaiming the name of the Lord and winning converts. And by the way, this is considered the key verse by uh, rabbis in the intertestamental period for Jews proselytizing to bring people into the faith, is they would go to this is what Abraham did in Genesis chapter 12. Now I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter 15, 6. Now this is an important verse that is often uh, misunderstood. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. What is it that he that Abram believed? When did Abram believe it? This is the key verse for Abram's salvation. He believed in the Lord and he accounted it. God accounted it. He imputed it or reckoned it to Abraham for righteousness. And the word here uh, in the Hebrew is the word that refers to uh, a calculation. It is a word that refers to uh, adding up a series of numbers and coming to a conclusion. It's the Hebrew word chashav, which interestingly enough in modern Hebrew refers to computers and computing. So it's the idea that God adds up the numbers or computes um, to righteousness to this to, to Abraham. Now, there's a huge discussion that goes on as to when this happened. Does this happen in Genesis 15? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And then Abram says, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I'm childless? Is my heir going to be my servant, Eliezer of Damascus? 
And the Lord says, no, it's going to be an offspring uh, from your own body that is going to be your heir. Uh, It's not going to be Eliezer, verse 4. And then God makes a promise to Abraham, look at all, takes him outside, look at all the stars in the sky, Your, your descendants are going to be as innumerable as the stars in the sky. And then it says, and he believed in the Lord. Now, in the English, it looks like what, he, what Abraham is doing is he's believing God's promise at this point, and now it's imputed to him as righteousness. You go to Romans 4, and Paul uses this as the benchmark passage in the Old Testament for imputation of righteousness and justification by faith alone. So if that's true, then you'd be forced to say, this is when Abram gets saved, which is what a lot of people say. However, what did we just say? Not only, that's in Genesis 15, 6, not only is is Abram making proclamation about the nature and essence and attributes of God in Shechem in Genesis 12, uh, 6 or 7. Yeah, 7 and 8. He calls on the name of the Lord. But prior to him building that altar in Shechem, prior to his calling on the name of the Lord at Shechem, Abraham, for the last 25 years in Haran, has been calling on the name of the Lord and making proclamation, evangelistic proclamation in the name of the Lord so that he has probably a thousand people with him when he leaves uh, when he leaves Haran. Now how do we know that? We know that because when we get into the passage we'll begin with next time in Genesis chapter 14 when you have the invasion uh, of the four kings of the east uh, headed up not by Keterleomer but by Amraphel who's the first one mentioned the king of Shinar that's Babel, Babylon. And he invades and defeats the five kings of the valley, which includes the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, that when they go through, this army from the east comes through and ravages and destroys these towns and takes captives and takes booty and plunder and heads to the north, that Abraham is going to go after him. And in verse 14 it says, And Abraham took... Uh, armed his 318 trained men. These are warriors. So he's got 318 trained warriors who are of fighting age. They're roughly between 20 and 40. There's 318 of them. That doesn't account the female servants that he has. It doesn't account for any of the older people that he has. It doesn't account for all of their flocks and their herds. So to have 318 trained men to serve as your private army means that you've probably got close to 1,000 people. And it's it's huge how wealthy Abraham is. Not only that, but um, there's a split that occurs in chapter 13 between Lot and Abraham. Why? Because the land is... It isn't big enough to handle all of their flocks and their herds. They've got to split up and go in different directions because they're so numerous. This is a huge group of people. Lot's people and um, Abram's people. 
And in Genesis um, 13 here and 14 here, it talks about Lot, and then we're going to get to Lot in Genesis chapter 17. But in Genesis chapter 15, we learn that Abraham has been declared righteous by God. And so he understands what justification by faith is. Later on, when we get to Genesis 17, and God and two angels show up, and they are entertained and by Abraham, and they are fed and everything. God has this conversation with these two angels. Well, should I hide what I'm getting ready to do from Abraham? And so he discloses what he's going to do to Abraham, that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for the depravity of their sin, which was sexual perversion of homosexuality. But that was secondary probably to idolatry and rejection of God, which caused them to go into all of those areas. And Abraham starts talking to God, and he says, Are, do you really have to do this? What if there were 50 righteous people in, in Sodom? God says, well, I would save them for the 50 righteous people. Well, what if there were 25? What if there were 20? What if there were 10? What if there were seven? Because there's Lot and his wife and their daughters. There's like four or five of them. And, and God says, if there are, you know, if there's just five or six righteous people, I will deliver them. Now, Lot is not experientially righteous. Lot is also called righteous Lot in Second Peter chapter 2. Lot has compromised with the culture in the city of the plains. He hasn't stood his ground and been separate. He's what today we would call a carnal believer, and he's in rank carnality. But how does Abraham refer to him as righteous? How does Peter refer to him in the New Testament? He's righteous. He's experientially righteous. And so Abraham has learned that what makes the difference in the world is you have those who are righteous, declared righteous by God positionally, even though their lives may be terrible. And on the other hand, you have the wicked. And that's how you see this contrast all through the Psalms. You have the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are righteous because of their position. We have to take it from Genesis. What makes Abraham righteous is not how good he is, but because God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to him. That made Lot righteous also, because he was immoral and he was um, had all kinds of problems and compromised with the world, but he's righteous because he too had trusted in uh, the Old Testament gospel and God had accredited to him as righteousness. So that's just one of our insights here as we talk about worship is it is only the righteous that can come and worship God, but the sin problem has to be dealt with. So we'll come back next time and we'll look at the new development in, in worship that occurs at the end of Genesis chapter 14, and that has to do with giving and tithing and trying to understand what is going on here in relation to this whole concept. Father, thank you that we can talk about these things. We can come to understand how to interact with the culture around us on the basis of your word. And that as Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 3.15, we need to give an answer for the hope that is in us with gentleness and humility. That it is not about winning a debate. It is not about uh, convincing 
um, you know, getting, getting that debate won and showing how right we are and how wrong somebody else is, but in helping them to understand the issues, to shed light on the fact that, that there is a belief system undergirding certain statements and that God is the only one that has the real answer. And so the issue is never about the superficial issues, like with this thing with uh, the football players. It's not that. It's what do we believe? And focusing on what we believe. And do we believe that which counts for eternal life? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.